Blog Talk Radio. Great joy and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese meditation bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the wisest counsel and most fascinating people in the business community from all around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, your Hieronymus Bosch of business. And let's be honest, you and, and most people have a giving spirit and in normal times, like say last December, businesses and individuals like you selected our favorite charities, we gave funds from a surplus and did all our part to make the world a better place. But that was yesteryear, my friend. Today, one out of five of America's 157 million person workforce has no job, no revenue, and a crashing economy. Meanwhile, the human need has exploded with every charity from the Portland area soup kitchen to the International Child Assault Prevention Organization, seeing the, the numbers just overwhelm their abilities. Now, our society, as you know, cannot function without its charities. But so many of these worthy enterprises are really staggering on the brink of shutting down. So how can today's COVID-enveloped nonprofits survive? They, how do they adapt? Um, what's, uh, what are they facing? Well, there's no panacea, but we've got something almost, uh, a solution almost as good, I'm going to say. Ms. Tasha Anderson, founder of the Charity CEO uh, in the gateway to the West, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, has for years helped charities get out of business. And she's going to reveal how to get the interested ears of funders, where they are, and a whole array of practical tactics. So whether you're laboring to keep your nonprofit afloat or you're just trying to run a more effective ship as the demand increases, pull up your chair and join us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, pull up your chair and join us for this feast of wisdom, all carefully cuisined to make your career thrive and your adventures flourish. Tasha, I'm so glad that you could make the journey, uh, journey from the line of the valley, virtually anyway, uh, <laughs> to bolster our struggling nonprofits with your expertise. Well, Bart, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, I think we're going to have we're going to have a lot of fun, and uh, people are going to gain an awful lot. Tasha, and I, I think we should get our terms terms right right from the beginning. Uh, as I look at finances um, or financial people, on, on one numbers crunching column, I've got the, the bookkeeper, the accountant, the director of finance, and the controller, and a whole lot of, of other fiscal uh, manipulators. And on the entirely other different side of the ledger, I've got the chief financial officer. And I've heard you say that these two positions demand not only different skill sets, but, but even mindsets and different personalities. So help us understand, what does each side supply uh, for the health of my organization? Absolutely. I think what's really interesting to, to define first and foremost is that some of these terms are used pretty synonymously, especially with small to mid-sized businesses. So maybe anything under $10 million, you might see a job right. ad for you know, a senior accountant, a director of finance, a controller, comptroller, or a CFO with all identical responsibilities. So really the <laughs> differentiation, <laughs> uh, which makes it a little bit confusing. Uh, so the differentiation really comes into play, I think, when you have an entire team of accountants uh, that might be yeah, working for you. But for purposes of our conversation today, kind of focusing on you know, that middle market or smaller 
uh, nonprofits, and, and I think this would probably apply for for-profit businesses as well, and kind of the differentiation between the two. Generally, we think of, especially small businesses, we need somebody that's going to do the transaction work, so the transaction processor, right. someone that pays the bills, collects on the receivables, and just makes sure that all that data gets put into their accounting system. But they also want someone to analyze and interpret the numbers. Exactly. But but a business also needs someone to analyze and interpret the numbers. The challenge for small to middle market businesses that they have a limited budget for personnel costs, right? But they need both functions. And I think there's this natural tension for business owners or leaders of nonprofits. I have this person, but they're only good at you know, the higher level thought processing. They don't have a, a great attention to detail or they seem restless or they get burnout in their role. Or to the contrary, you have a bookkeeper, a transactional person that just can't offer the words of wisdom and the analytical skills that you're, you're looking for. And as right. someone that has to recruit accountants all of the time for my own firm, I hire yeah, entry-level yeah. bookkeepers and I also hire senior-level CPAs and what I've realized over time is these are two completely distinct skill sets. Myself, I tend to no be more kidding. of a creative thinker. Absolutely. Uh-huh. More of a creative thinker. Uh, I'm also, I love project-based work. I love coming up with you know, solutions based on data. But although I am a CPA, I would be bored to tears doing the same day-to-day transactional work. <laughs> so we need both functions. And most businesses wrap those two functions up into one person. So really your bookkeeper is going to be doing the day-to-day transactions, getting the information into the system, paying the bills, like like I said. The higher level person, whether you call it a director of finance or a comptroller or uh, you know a CFO, they're really going to be looking at the numbers and would be able to quickly see is something off, is something wrong, is something trending positively or negatively, and also give you some of that financial thought leadership an advice on right. kind of our next move based on the numbers. Okay. I, I'm really glad that you separated those two and put it together. I know that many mid-sized firms are looking to move to that CFO slot or a position, develop it. Uh, is there is there some sort of point where, uh, where, there, where the CFO – uh, becomes a necessary person. I mean, is there a is it a matter of revenue or clients or number of employees, uh, or is it really just a matter of of your individual ship, uh, whether you want that CFO uh, position? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I, as an accountant, I really like just solid answers and very clear black or white, <laughs> true or false. Um, but unfortunately, it's very individualized because. It's really a function of size, but more importantly, your complexity. And that really varies really on industry. For example, and and this is the case for for for-profits as well. So, for example, you might have a pretty straightforward e-commerce business that sells one product. There's a specific margin, and and it's a very simple process. And your revenue growth is driven by volume, right? It's pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward. You might also be a very complex construction company that has numerous projects going on at any given time, and you need to make sure that each individual job is profitable or whether you need to request a change order or something like that. So different industries can get further in revenue than other industries, and I would say those that are really micromanaging at a level of project or grant-based, nonprofits are the same way, 
are going to need that senior level person much sooner than a much more simple um, business structure. And it it really varies by industry. So I would say if I were to ballpark it, usually a nonprofit, particularly those with social service, meaning they have a lot of grants, they have a lot of contracts, they have a broad spectrum of different funders, we're going to start looking for that higher level person around a million dollars in annual revenue or more. Uh, And then there's, of course, you know, for the for-profit side, I think you could probably get a little bit closer to, you know, maybe two to three million. But I would say myself, I'm a for-profit business. Uh, At a minimum, though, I would be looking to work with a tax planner. So not necessarily Mm. a CFO internally, but really important to be working with a tax planner to understand, you know, tax liabilities and how you can be wise with with the you know, surpluses at the end of the year. And I would really be looking to hire a savvy tax planner different than a tax preparer. So this is not someone just filling oh, out yeah, the form, no, no. but someone that's making uh, strategic moves proactively prior to year end. So now's the time to be looking for someone if you're not already. I'm not a tax planner, uh, <laughs> but no, no, no. I work with a tax planner myself. Ah. But maybe around 250000 in, in net income or more, you should really, really? be considering okay. how can you be smarter. Yeah, it, you can really have. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up. It's really good. I uh, because I, the the ways of tax are uh, Byzantine at, at best. Uh, I always. By the way, do you 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 know why pirates have to dress better than IRS agents? Don't you? <laughs> no, but I suspect most people dress better than IRS agents. No, well, that's because the pirate has to appear in person to steal your money. Anyway, right? <laughs> so so but. But you're you're going for the uh, tax. File. I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's uh, uh, again one one more practical person uh, or a skill uh, slot that that needs to be handled. And I think a lot of people we, we tend to think in slots and that, or in positions. And you're you're talking about needs. And I'm glad you did that. Um, so if you have just joined us, you are listening to The Art of the CEO, which every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time streams lavishly into your waiting ears across the mightily misunderstood realms of cyberspace, where you may listen and download it by visiting theartoftheceo.com. We are on several radio stations, but the the best way to find all the shows is to visit theartoftheceo.com. Now, Tasha, to survive... Um, well, let's really let's go back. Let's let's take it from the beginning. Compared to uh, the the COVID nineteen assault, uh, the two thousand eight recession was was a minor mosquito bite for charitable enterprises. So, could you give us a, a solid picture, just a, a good comparison picture, looking at uh, the nonprofit world in say December two thousand nineteen versus today, mid COVID September twenty twenty. Yeah, from from my client's perspective and keeping in mind I work primarily with social service and education organizations and some faith-based organizations, I would say the biggest difference is around the inability to hold events. So many of my clients rely heavily on large galas and special events, and they've had to pivot those to a virtual nature, some more successful than others, but certainly nowhere near as successful as a live in-person event. And then I think also equally as difficult is the delivery of services. So most of my schools have been pretty, pretty significantly affected. Uh, parents are unable to pay tuition or, or are, frankly, are unwilling to pay tuition if the schools are not open. Uh, and in some cases for my social service agencies, for example, that do 
hearing assessments uh, for children that otherwise couldn't afford them, they don't have an ability to generate revenue if they're not able to do, you know, in-person visits. Sure. And so the inability right, yeah, to right. offer in-service. Can't make the visit, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Oh, so that's the biggest challenge, much different than 2008, although unemployment certainly had an impact and, and the stock market certainly had an impact, but many nonprofits were still able to fulfill their contracts. There were still government you know, revenues that were available, uh, and they were still certainly able to have events. Uh, they, they have to be much more creative and yeah. pivoting uh, to online services, which for some services are much easier than others. But the truth is, most nonprofits really aren't that modern from an infrastructure standpoint. Uh, I think not right, not necessarily right. because they don't want to be. <laughs> they just don't have the skill set or the funds to invest. And they're certainly not as tech savvy, which has created certainly some challenges reconfiguring their programming to allow for telehealth services or uh, remote learning opportunities uh, and things of that nature. Well, you yourself uh, started the charity CFO as a virtual-based business, and so you have had the expertise in this. But as you say, most nonprofits have not looked at this. And uh, one of the big adaptations I see it is, is, as you've just mentioned, is our whole way of communicating has uh, has to change, is changing. So um, could you give us a, a couple of tips or perhaps uh, charities, I know, uh, who hold events and so forth. Can you give us a couple of tips or examples of how uh, this re-adaptation of communication needs to be done and has been done? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, a lot of times nonprofits struggle with just getting started. And what I always advise nonprofits and other small businesses too, just because you're working with a practitioner and fill in the blank, whoever right. it might be. It might be a grant writer, could be an accountant, could be whoever, says that it can't be done virtually or faster or smarter or using modern technology, definitely get a second opinion. Just because the <laughs> practitioner is not aware does not mean that's the end all yeah. be all. And, and that can apply with many <laughs> areas of oh, our, our, of our lives, that. right? Um, and then also upgrading technology and modernizing solutions, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be as expensive as you would think. And oftentimes, for example, us in offering accounting services, although we might upgrade their technology and their systems, we are still able to save clients quite a bit of money uh, on an ongoing basis. So, again, definitely yeah. check with your providers or get a second opinion if you feel like, oh, that seems like something that could be virtual in this day and age. Uh, and I think for, for tips on nonprofits, a lot of things that I, that I notice, for example, just basic things like the inability to process bills can't be done without uh, being in the office and printing checks and shuffling paper all over the office to get the appropriate signatures. All of that can be done completely remotely now. Uh, payroll, for example, right, collecting right. everybody's time, and time card information. I have many clients that I've started working with that still shuffle time cards all over their campus, and that can be completely virtual. A lot of the fundraising opportunities yeah. moving away, especially faith-based organizations, moving away from the traditional checks to more online giving can certainly be uh, rolled out with, with relative ease as well. And, and there's just new technology developing every single day that um, allows us to completely modernize and lift all of our systems into the cloud which then allows many people to access at the same time without having to put your internal server at risk, which I know is a huge uh, you know, right. yeah. hurdle for it's nonprofits a big, and a lot of their resistance. Yeah. 
I I think you're right. I, uh, just uh, are there any quick? As I'm shifting my uh, systems, uh, my financial, my payment systems, and so forth, any quick caveats? Anything that I should be aware of just before I do that with my uh, uh, with my organization? Yeah, a lot of banks now use a lot of bill pay processes uh, that's already maybe included with your banking solution. So certainly look into that. And and as much as we like, especially post-PPP, and I won't get too political into that, Ralph, but but, uh, post the payroll protection program uh, rollout, many nonprofits realize that the smaller neighborhood banks are uh, really friendly uh, and have really helped them through that process. The challenge is some banks just not all banking platforms are created equal, let's just say that. And the national banks certainly yeah, have yeah. a leg up in that regard. So if your bank already has a pretty robust system, uh, certainly consider using that. It won't cost you anything else. If it doesn't yeah, have a robust system, talk to your banker and, and figure out what their plans are to get on board with online bill pay and those sort of options. There are other systems. Uh, one of my favorites is bill.com. It's a uh, technology platform that you essentially have your vendors email the invoices in. You can tag them for the appropriate accounting. Uh, You can tag them for approval. And then you could submit payments all through one software. So that's a, it's not tied to any particular bank. Uh, But a lot of banks Mm -hmm. are using that platform uh, kind of in a back-end processor way. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily yeah. have that name, but it's a great system. It's called Bill.com. Uh, I think that's a really easy modern system. And then also the same for payroll. If you're finding it's a very manual system, it might be time for you to consider going with a larger uh, payroll processing firm. Unfortunately, you, you do lose some of that individual attention, so that's something you have to consider. But there's mm-hmm. great now, tools that roll out with those bigger platforms. Okay. Oh, that's great. But the other one that you started to talk about was events. Uh, got anybody who – got an example of somebody who tried to do events, uh, who was used to events, and uh, came up with a, a good solution, a, a, a better, a workable solution on that one? Yeah, it's really interesting. I have one client who has a large parade each year, and there's certainly some sponsorship opportunities. Yeah, and uh, certainly during election years, we tend to be uh, getting a lot of political party donations and, you know, there's floats and and the whole nine yards. And, um, of course, this was in April, I'm sorry, May, the parade was supposed to happen. And what we ended Uh up doing is this whole online a competition, if you will, between a couple different parties who can raise the most money. Uh, and it was really oh. successful through Facebook Live and using Cash App and really kind of the whole huh. fundraising with a thermometer, where are we at, you know, in relation to our goal and those sort of things. And they were actually probably able to raise about 75% of their uh, total budget, which is fantastic oh. considering you know, certainly they had a month and a half notice to completely pivot, and uh, I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but but we pulled it off, and uh, it was really successful, and it'll be interesting to see if they keep an element of that going forward, because it really allows greater participation. I think that's interesting that it's turning back to the uh, some of the old style, but the competition aspect was very good. I I love that. Tasha, we all know that funders, uh, 
with with all our as we get creative here, it's all fine. But but uh, the funders themselves are are getting stricter in their qualifications and they're more cautious. Uh, times are hard, and uh, and you keep seeking, uh, you keep hearing about uh, funders wanting greater transparency and accountability. Those are fabulous words. Uh, you you hear them applied so often by people who have no idea. So. Could you do me a, do us a favor? What could give us an example of, say, a charity that has moved toward a greater transparency and accountability uh, to, to to satisfy the uh, funders' hunger? Sure. I think a lot of times people think of transparency and accountability on a financial measure, but the truth is, financial information has always been publicly available for most nonprofits. The exception would be, mm-hmm. you know religious exemptions around your church and and things of that nature. But for the most part, most nonprofits have publicly available information. The IRS has a nice tool they've recently added. You can search for nonprofits and pull up all their old tax returns. So from a financial perspective, that information's always been available. It's just, you know, seeking out that information. But I think that an interesting point this particular year that funders have converted a lot of their restricted giving to unrestricted funds to allow nonprofits to pivot accordingly. Meaning if if a funder A gave, you know, $20,000 for this particular program, they many, in many cases, particularly here in St. Louis as well, um, have come back and said, listen, we know you're in unprecedented times. We want to make sure that your programs can continue. I recognize that some of the deliverables may not happen because of the challenges of in-person. Go ahead and use the funds you know, as you're kind of triaging the situation. They've already invested so much into the program, they want to make sure the program stays viable. So that's kind of an interesting thing that we've seen this year. But but I think as it relates to transparency and accountability, I think people assume that we're talking about finances, but many of my clients have taken a little bit of a different approach in the sense of, you know, is that information uh, in terms of outcomes? Right? What did you do with uh, the money that we gave? Not necessarily what you spent it on, but what what kind of ROI did we experience? And so many of my clients have started including both financial reports on their website and then also including outcome measurements. So meaning how many kids did we serve? What percentage had the outcomes that we wanted? More and more of those data points are being asked initially on the application. What are you hoping to mm-hmm. do with these funds? Not just specifically, we're not paying for the purple pens, but we're paying for this outcome, right? And then how do you stack up against what you originally thought? And so more of that information is being shared in annual reports on the website, but at a more of a micro level, certainly with the funders that are paying for those particular, um, you know, services. The challenge really is when funders dictate, we want these outcomes if we're giving you this money. I used to be a CFO Mm -hmm. of a nonprofit. Uh, We had... 14 different government contracts and numerous private uh, foundations that, that funded us. And we had four pages front and back of all of the different outcomes that we were uh, oh, subject my gosh. to. And so to keep track of four pages front and back, and this is small font. <laughs> uh, so just <laughs> for the team to understand what do we have to measure? Are we tracking it the right way? The frequency in which we need to report it. So, a lot of times the data is there. It's just it's just organizing it and, and interpreting it and reporting and, on it can be challenging. And putting it out to the funder so he will see he feels that he has uh, done something powerful. 
and, and gotten, uh, gotten a good ROI. I, okay. Yeah. I think that's I think that's very very wise. We're going to ask you some some ways to do that later, and in fact, we're going to continue uh, a lot more about your wise strategies because I, I love what you're saying. But we're right now. Uh, uh, you and I are going to take a sort of a well, a, a sorbet from today's feast of wisdom, and uh, as we offer you with what we call a few utensils for today's feast. And the first utensil, as I always do, allow me to remind each of you hearing my voice that the good Lord has gifted you with the title and privileges of Chief Executive Officer of yourself. And since that's really the most important position you'll ever hold in your career, allow me to ask, will this be the day that you pull out that list of goals and find one subject of study that's going to bring those goals closer to your grasp? Or will you continue to plot along with the old unsharpened tools you've had forever? The choice, my friend, is truly yours. There's a second utensil. I can sense you yearning to steep your lips into a little laughter and take the scriptural recitation from our source book of business humor in the words of my wife's husband. So I am pulling it out. I'm, gonna, I'm thumbing through the Carmudgepedia. This is our devilish def, definitions of business jargon. And Oh, here we go. I love this one. Double-entry bookkeeping is defined as a financial safeguard achieved by keeping one set of books for the auditors, another set of books for the shareholders, while the true figures lie locked away in the CFO's brain. What do you think, Tasha? Is that the way a lot of uh, companies are are running it now? And uh, is that one that you personally recommend? (laughs) (laughs) I I think out of survival, uh, I I would have to say I do – recommend that uh it's not ideal but but it's certainly the case in in fact you know there's it's interesting i tell clients uh that there's what the accounting gods or generally accepted accounting principles require of us the irs has a totally separate set of rules and how they want things presented and then there's also managerial cash flow right what resources are we available for what we've, we've we've mentioned and really it's completely different presentations. So it's absolutely true that there are different sets of books, if you will, or different ways of interpreting it. And uh, without having those, I think it's really difficult to to manage the business and uh, make everyone else happy you have to report to. My books are put out, the books that I've written have been put out in several languages. And I think you're at, what you're calling for is the same thing. So I think that I think it's a wise mm-hmm. idea. At any rate, if you smirked a bit over that quip, we have them literally by the books full. Just visit BartsBooks.com, pick up your copy of the 102 or the 101 Best Business Quips book, um, or in the words of my wife's husband. And with any of these, you can startle your fellow Zoommates humorously out of their online lethargy and get them to actually take some interest in your wise words. Guaranteed. Well, perhaps. Anyway, maybe. <laughs> and as a third utensil, we sumptuously spoon to you the answer to last week's uh, business quotation. That is, the name of the individual who said, when in doubt, mumble. When in trouble, delegate. And when in charge, ponder. <laughs> Those words were spoken by none other than the author of How to Be a Sincere Phony, the Mr. James H. Bourne. Marvelous uh, business wit. 
And stick with us because uh, later on in the show, Blurting Your Way is going to come another enriching quotation. And if you're among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be and email it right off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com. And if you are correct, your knowledge will earn you a soul-igniting gift freshly disemboweled from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And financial wizardess Miss Tasha Anderson will continue her COVID times survival guide for nonprofits and with a lot of information for profits uh, right after I introduce to you the company by whose good graces we're here today. And that firm is Prometheus Publishing. We invite you to take a look at its upcoming offering in the words of my wife's husband. Here it is, my friend. Everything that's just so funny about our world of business. It's your chance to dip in, seize a fistful of rye wit, pass along to your fellow dream chasers at work. And if you believe like we do, that the greatest wisdom flies in on the wings of laughter, well, you may want to browse through and savor some of these lines like vintage wine. Uh, Here's what I like uh, speaking of finances. Uh, Private equity investing is currently so popular because it provides the maximum of anxiety along with an ultimate opportunity for you to lose your shirt unseen. Or the other one, uh, oh, here's the second one. Uh, Teach a man to shoplift and you can feed him for a day, but teach him to steal your identity and he'll dine on steak and caviar far into the future. At any rate, this volume calls and combines the very best and funniest of uh, quips, jovial repartee from the radio show, all the sardonic fun. And uh, so pick up your copy of In the Words of My Wife's Husband so that you may laugh, share, and grow nearly wise. Carpe diem, my friend. You are worth it. Go to bartsbooks.com. And now, uh, with utensils in hand, let's return to the very practical wisdom of Miss Tasha Anderson, advising us how to crunch numbers and crunch obstacles facing charities. Tasha, According to you, uh, when we chat, you, you said it's not all bad news. You said there are some uh, newly developed unseen funding sources and and um, opportunities such as the high net worth individual deduction increase. Um, in, in what new corners of the financial realm should a clever charity be looking nowadays? Certainly. So as a taxpayer, you know, there's there's some benefits that have come down from the CARES Act. Again, I'm not a tax planner, so check with your tax planner first. But there's certainly some more favorable write-offs for significant contributions that can be made this year. In some cases, 100% of your AGI can be deducted 100%, which is much different than, than normal tax years. So check with a ta- yeah, tax yeah. planner on, on the CARES Act specifically for 2020. But then also going forward, there's certainly vehicles like donor advised funds, foundations, and other charitable mechanisms that, that allow for tax savings. And then if you're a nonprofit, really partnering with you know, a firm, and in many cases, nonprofits are already working with some sort of public accounting firm, whether it's on their tax preparation side or on their audits, uh, certainly reach out to them and see if there's ways that you can interpret that information in a you know, reading-friendly, donor-friendly language that you can then share with your donors. Maybe put that in in your, you know, uh, annual appeal or any of your newsletters, uh, any of your mailings that are going out, especially uh, I know some nonprofits are starting to send those out earlier in light of, you know, some of this uh, fear of of U.S. 
postal service delays or anything like that. So if you haven't considered the CARES Act, especially uh, the CARES Act changes to, to tax planning for charitable giving, certainly reach out to your CPA or audit firm or CPA firm that you're working with, and maybe they can help articulate that language in a way that, that flows nicely in your in your next appeal. Ah, that's a great idea. That's that's it's getting it where it lives. And you know, another thing that, that you have referred to is giving the funder what uh, the what he's looking for, and that is the the absolute tracing of where the numbers uh, of of where his his investment uh, is has gone with with your charity. And you had said that there are some. Uh, uh, are there new technologies or programs that I should be looking into that might help me on this? Uh, just from a technological amp- uh, standpoint, something that that you've seen is very valuable. On, forgive me. Can you re- repeat that question on the well, specific to which part? Well, yeah, uh, basically, uh, if I'm if I want to give my uh, funder a very good tracking of where my investment, where his investment went and and uh where gotcha. all the places that it's gone yeah is there some uh i i know there are, are vastly improved uh tra- tracking and tracing programs is there anything specific that, that you uh like to recommend gotcha yes i do uh, now now i understand your question so so what i i kind of go back to my question or my, my statement earlier about if your practitioner does not know how to track expenses or revenues by donor, that does not mean it can't be done. And a lot of times nonprofits have convinced themselves that even, you know, a very basic out of the box system, like say QuickBooks, for example, is incapable of of this level of granular tracking. And that's just simply not true. We work with clients all over the country and they have QuickBooks online for, I think, all but two of our clients. Uh, and I think right now we're working with 64 clients nationwide, and they all range in size from startup to, I think our largest is about seven or eight million. And most of them use QuickBooks, like I said, all but two. And it's really about designing the system and the consistency for which you record that data. And if you're not able to do that, then check with another practitioner, get a second opinion, or you know, visit my website if you want me to direct you and do how to do that. <laughs> But, uh, you know, truly, you should be able and you can do that through very simple tools that you're probably already using. And I think that software, by and large, is always underutilized. You know, I use lots of software and technology, and I probably use a small percentage of its capabilities. But uh, most nonprofits think that they need to buy an expensive piece of software or something to that effect to get that. Uh, And really what it boils down to is just the training on how to use the system uh, in fuller capacity compared to what they're doing now. Uh, you have, you really have won my heart with that answer. I got to tell you, I have. You are you are saying that the the solution lies not in the program, Horatio, but in the people. Get the people to know their tools a little better. And I, yeah. uh, so I've totally 100% behind you for that. I'm 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 the believer here that all business is personal and it's it's the people that make the difference. Bless you for adding mm-hmm. that one in. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of people, uh, of course, times are tough. Everything's shrinking. And, and for some reason, the term financially conservative seems to get translated along to firing 
staff managers, uh, firing staff. Uh, you know, we want to get rid of all our middle management because I, I can't personally see what they're doing, so they must be doing nothing. You know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, my experience is, is that it really is the staff members in in charitable organizations. They're the ones who come up with who not only come up with the new ideas, they handle them, they execute them, they make sure they're done, they make sure that the that the whole charity is growing step by step. And so here we are uh, at, at a time when belt tightening is absolutely necessary. Do we need more people? Do we need fewer people to thrive in 2020? What's the deal? Yeah. Well, I think you'll like this answer, too. It's not that we need a certain number of people. We need the right people. And I see this happen all the time. Most nonprofits will call me, you know, Tasha, I'm having a little bit of a struggle with my CFO or we're having a budget issue and we're considering eliminating this position, but I'm worried about, you know, what this person does. And I start digging a little bit deeper. And if there's concerns or issues with their accounting, whether the timeliness or the accuracy or what have you, uh, and then usually right. there's a second second in command in that particular department. I, I usually, I, I would say, I would use the word joking, but I, I don't think I'm quite joking. I'm just trying to, to lay it softly that it's usually not the CFO that's doing the bulk of the work. It's that second person, right? Uh, right, your, right. So oftentimes I see nonprofits, if they're struggling with something, they tend to put more money into it. So just keep adding more people, which which quickly adds up in personnel cost. And generally what it boils down to is you have the wrong person and or now people uh, in that seat. And so it's not about necessarily reducing costs or focusing on that, although that's an added benefit. It's finding the right person, which generally equates to, to less people. But if you have the right person in that senior seat, going to go back to our conversation earlier about two different skill sets. So if you have the ideas you know, the idea generator, the creative mind, the, the system developer that will then, ex, you know, assign that to be executed by lesser staff people can work quite beautifully. And you can get quite far with one or two people on your accounting team. But oftentimes I see with nonprofits, particularly because the person that runs the nonprofits generally doesn't come from a financial background. That's not their expertise. They don't know. They're taking you know, that advice from their senior financial person, well, we're falling behind, we're, we're having these issues, we need more help, we need more staff. And truly, it's a, it's a process issue, it's a system issue, it's a skills and training. Um, generally, you don't need to add more people. Uh, I'll say that within reason. Talking about a middle market, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're, if you're <laughs> 5 million or below, you definitely don't need more than two people. Um, it's, right, it's, right. it's those other issues. It's finding the right person, as you mentioned. Okay, I I think that, and you put you put me in mind of something <clears throat> when you, when you talk about you know getting when you talk about getting the right people and in the right spot. I think so often um, find, uh, the person who heads the charity, as you yourself mentioned, is people who start charities tend not to be financial people they tend to be people guided by uh their heart and uh, they and which means how much information do they have about how much expertise they have about finance probably not a lot so but if you are going to be the head of a charitable or any organization nowadays i feel you need to know some uh you have to have a good solid financial uh working knowledge and i don't uh, 
you, you, I don't think you can just say, well, we leave it to the money boys. You know, that, that's, uh, that, those days are gone. So what do you tell the head of a charity who, who really needs to learn something? Uh, is there something you tell them to study? How, do, how, do they, how can they kind of pick up the necessary information, financial uh, knowledge on the, on the, on the fly? Yeah, I think that's a tough question because there's not a lot of great resources out there. I've I've looked at numerous mm-hmm. conferences specific to nonprofits. Uh, I look at different you know resources available. For example, I was looking at um, I won't mention any names, but large conferences, some of the largest conferences. And interestingly, there's not a single financial course within that conference that's you know three four mm-hmm. days long. Not a single one, oh, with the exception of oh, sometimes my. some accounting software. Right, some accounting software yeah, that, yeah. that are doing demos and trying to sell you the software, but there's not a sure, person on there really educating. And I completely agree with you. I've often said that, and, and maybe this is a little bit of an overgeneralization, but I don't think so. Only in the nonprofit space can the leader of a nonprofit get away with having zero understanding of the numbers, the financial. If you think about it, a for-profit, if you have division leaders, the division, or in this case, the program directors, let's say, know their numbers, they know their sales, they know their profitability by their division, they understand what they're moving forward. And, and in the nonprofit space, it's kind of like, well, we have an accountant and they're responsible for all things numbers and, and, and we don't know what's going on. Um, only in the nonprofit space have they been able to get away with that. And I completely agree with you, they need to get up to speed. So for our clients, what we do is meet with them on a weekly basis and just start pouring over the numbers oh. and educating the CEO. And what I tell them, I don't want you to be caught off guard when a board member or a funder asks you a specific question and you don't possess the knowledge to do so. Because to your point, oftentimes uh. leaders are educators, healthcare professionals, uh, people that come through ministry or something to that effect. You know, they don't have a business background. They're not necessarily entrepreneurial minded. They, they're just trying to deliver right. programs that, that are within their expertise. But Unfortunately, that is part of their role and how to get them up to speed. And, and we were just discussing internally with my team this morning about creating training for program directors to understand mm. their budget. You would be surprised how many, at a middle management level, they're not involved in their budget creation and they're not accountable for it. Uh, it's usually the right. accountant. And I know I used to be a CFO of a nonprofit and I would have to answer to the yeah. board why a particular program overspent in a particular area. <laughs> and in my mind, it should it should look something more like, well, program director, why don't you answer that question, right? Um, but that's generally not the way it works. I think, I think that your answer is to, of having the, the head of the charity, whatever that he's calling himself or herself, is to meet uh, frequently with the fi- with the financial person is an excellent idea. I think that's good, and uh, so that they that they don't get blindsided, and also that they begin to talk the same language. So I I, I think that's great. I I've, I really appreciate that. Now I'm gonna uh, we're coming toward the end, but I did want to ask you one thing. Every year, Dasha, and uh, we at Prometheus Publishing offer our Prometheus Social Enterprise Awards. We celebrating those who've responded to some sort of human need with an inventive, enlightening enterprise. It gives good role models. It's something we want to do. And actually, uh, for you listening, I should tell you that I have asked Tasha, charity CFO founder, uh, 
to to visit bardsbooks.com and review um, the uh, Prometheus Publishing. And uh, so now, Tasha, allow me to ask, hey, did you spot any clever tactic that was good or any terrible problem that you're saying, oh, my gosh, you blow it off, like, or whatever? <laughs> what, uh, give us some, some good things and some bad things, if there are any good things. What What's your assessment? You know what? I, I actually tried to find something that I could say that was terrible, uh, <laughs> but I was really quite impressed <laughs> with the list, not just uh, the diversity on, on the work that's done, but also in, in all categories, age, race, gender, um, the mission of, of the work that they do, for-profit and non-profit. And I think sometimes in the non-profit space, and specifically how do we get non-profits to be more um, you know, to have an adaptable idea, as you mentioned, or, or clever tactic or, or something that's a little bit outside the box. And I think in some ways as an industry, we've kind of, uh, we've put too many boundaries on that creativity. And what do I mean by that? That, mm. that oftentimes in order to get funded, in order to get any sort of seed money for your program or your mission or, or your ideas, that it has to fall within very specific parameters, meaning it has to be evidence-based, meaning that it's already been tried, true, and tested, right? And so, unfortunately, it kind of squashes some of that creativity. And if there was a way that, you know, creative-minded people that just so happen to work in the nonprofit space can, can really do that without the strings attached, I think we would see a lot more of that. I do know that that's been an issue for many nonprofits, including the one I used to be a CFO. We had to actually dig into our reserves and invest in a program that we believe strongly in the science, but it wasn't what they call an evidence-based practice, therefore no funder would help support it until it was. Uh, and I think that that's the challenge yeah. for organizations to share their ideas or to move forward with their creative ideas because of the system that we've put in place for that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of sharing ideas, if, uh, if I'm looking to get my uh, my nonprofit turned around and I want to find a, a good way to get myself both financially and organizationally and structurally afloat, how do I get in touch with the charity CFO and you and your team to help me better communicate and better operate? Yeah, the best place is just go to our website, www.thecharitycfo.com. And because mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that there's just such few resources out there for nonprofit leaders. We've started uh, doing some different recordings and and giving different tips, tricks, and hacks. Uh, So we started a YouTube channel. You can go ahead and subscribe to that and our newsletter. Beyond any of that content that's available, there's some really useful books, even you know, a simple Google search on Amazon, nonprofit accounting. Uh, And interestingly enough, YouTube videos are free. Um, Nonprofits always like free training. So they're free, they're useful, and if you just start searching, doing basic searches on how do you do this within QuickBooks or something, if you're using an out-of-box system and you want to figure out how do you make that specific to your niche, and this applies for nonprofits and any other thing. If you're a real estate company, if you're a construction company, uh, how to do accounting for construction companies, how to... How to right. track jobs for construction companies in QuickBooks. You can certainly do that. Um, there's lots of books. There's there's YouTube videos for practice. Uh, but certainly, connect with us on the newsletter. Visit our website, and we're constantly developing new training for nonprofit leaders specific to to their issues. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. So I so I, I think this is great, and the fact that you have so much information out there on the YouTube channel and, of course, on, on your website, I, I think that's great. So, And I, I'm looking forward. So if you are, uh, I'm looking forward to getting uh, more uh, learning for our own charities uh, here. And if, if you are out there, may I heartily recommend calling Tasha, because here's a woman who, as you have been hearing this hour, has straight, practical, solid solutions that are going to keep uh, your most uh, compassionate services afloat and in the COVID times. Tasha, this has been a great deal of fun, and I've learned a lot. And I, I thank you very, very much for coming on, and hopefully we can uh, seduce you back on at a later date. Absolutely. It's been a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, you take good care. And now, uh, as we round out today's feast, I am Bart Jackson, your curator of business wisdom, leaving you with today's business quotations. And that uh, that is, who was it who said, let your words be a little wild. They ought to be, for they are the assault of thought on the unthinking. <laughs> More timely now than ever. And as a hint to the other, this British revolutionary economist changed the entire way governments have viewed finances and shattering the self-serving myths of neoclassical or trickle-down economics, supplying them with truth, which is very much in demand. And remember, if you know the author of this quote, just write the author's name down as you believe him or her to be and send it right off to info at bartsbooks.com to win a career-changing gift from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And as a parting shot, in the words of my wife's husband, knowledge is committing to memory the original ideas of many other people. Creativity is inventing something useful, like the wheel. Again, you need both. And to you, gleefully sharing our feast, I hope you've enjoyed The Art of the CEO as much as Tasha and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. And remember that you may download this and all our shows by visiting theartoftheceo.com. And finally to you, who have honored us with your time, may I say as always, it has been a privilege, and I thank you. <laughs>